0: Hey, thanks for coming back. You're with us for another minute of the Rocketeer Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we talk about the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnson-directed movie The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of tvdads.com.
1: And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd, uh, coming to you from the uh, great city of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, home of the Experimental Aircraft Association.
0: And we are talking about minute two. We're in the second minute of The Rocketeer. Where uh, we've been watching them push an aircraft through a hangar door, and uh, while James Horner pulls out the clarinets and and starts up his uh, beautiful theme to the to the Rocketeer, <laughs> the the problem with watching this movie one minute at a time is that you just want to keep going because you're hearing the uh, the James Horner music, and you just want to finish the whole suite. Yeah, it's absolutely criminal to, to, yeah. to chop that uh, to chop that piece of music up. It is stunning, and I know it's on a frequent play on my. Uh, on my iPhone when I'm driving in the car. It's also very dangerous when the pace starts picking up because (laughs) I have to stay in my lane, stay in traffic.
1: You start pulling back on the steering wheel, hoping you can fly.
0: (laughs) Where's my throttle? We're still watching some of the title cards going by of different characters as the blurred image of the uh, the GB is being rolled through the hangar there on this Friday morning in October of 1938 the next character that comes up and I think we just have to have a moment pause take a deep breath and say yes. Jennifer Connelly and behave
1: like mature adults Yes, because yes. as far as anybody listening knows we might be mature adults
0: yes it's, <laughs> no. Uh, let, let's talk about the wonderful act- actress uh, Jennifer Connelly gosh all of her life I think she's been uh, up on the movie uh, screen and everybody's been pretty amazed that she's very compelling you don't you don't see her and say well i mean i guess maybe nowadays you say that's jennifer when you see her you believe the part that she's in in this movie she's she's the damsel in distress although she doesn't she doesn't really take that role too seriously as as being a da- you know in distress she no kinda...
1: she she definitely holds her own you know, yeah, she, she's, she's got her own plans and her own uh, her own ideas
0: yeah, I mean she's one of the few people that's defeated James Bond. So, uh well we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but uh but yeah, Jennifer Connelly's had had an excellent career. Uh this was one of her first grown-up roles. I think it's the most grown-up. She was, she had, the previous year she'd been in the movie Career Opportunities, a comedy and yeah, but up until then she was mostly a kid. She was I think most famously known where everybody kind of remembers her from the, you know back in 1991. with she'd be the main character in Labyrinth.
1: Yep. Uh, yeah that was nineteen eighty two I think wasn't it yeah yeah and she so, was
0: just a, she was the kid at the time up right. against uh David Bowie, the evil David Bowie for you know taking her brother away you know she is a she's a stunning a stunning woman and looks she she was on you know glamour magazine and seventeen and all these other things. It goes far beyond her looks her uh, her acting ability her chops here her ability to sell the story, no matter how ridiculous it is really made she really helped this movie become believable. She seemed to be uh, you know a struggling actress and uh, well, we'll we'll find out more about her as, as these uh, as these minutes go by. But uh, again, another great piece, piece of casting. she's in this movie to uh, replace uh, the graphic novel's girlfriend who was Betty Page, and we will be talking about just in a, in two more episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about Betty Page, the uh, the original girlfriend of Cliff Secord for this movie. Um, but she did a great job, made made this whole movie family friendly. Yet still sexy and charming. So anyway, let's 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 save Jennifer Connolly for later. Um <laughs> As if that were possible. Yeah. And as as she uh, fades off the screen we see a, a tailwheel go by of the of the G B that uh a symptom or a, a kind of a signature of the of the era that the tail uh, tail dragger planes which kind of also sets the tone for what you know what year this is and where where we are at the at the confluence of a bunch of different uh, changes in aviation
1: right um, and <clears throat> i think we're going to be talking about the gb quite a bit uh you know sort of through this section and then of course in much much later episodes no spoilers of course but uh you know it's interesting to point out that uh this airplane was Um, at least in the early 30s. Um, You have to be honest and say it is a little bit dated uh, to see it here in 1938. This is a GB Model Z, GB for the Granville Brothers, we mentioned uh, in uh, yesterday's episode. Uh, It was built strictly for racing, and, you know, racing was a a big, big deal in this era. Um, And I I know we talk a little bit, uh, I think we'll plan on talking a little bit more about uh, some of the air racing and stuff in in a couple of later episodes, um, especially when we see some of the local sort of pylon racing that's happening but the thing you want to put in your head is that uh, uh, at the time this airplane uh, was introduced uh, you know, it was the fastest thing out there it was faster than anything that the army had at the time the army was was lagging way behind what uh, civilian designers like the Granville brothers were up to
0: they were still using uh, biplanes to an extent weren't they I, absolutely
1: yeah they still were using like the Boeing uh, F4B4 and things like that Uh uh, all along, uh, through, through a lot of the thirties, certainly late twenties and through the thirties. And you talk about the tail wheel, um, you know, we don't want to beat that into the ground and you, you get a good I- example of, uh, what makes that challenging in, uh, maybe right at the end of this minute or the beginning of the, the next, when you see some taxiing and starting to take off, um, you can't see anything straight ahead in the tail wheel airplane, uh, uh, especially one like this some you can but the gv the visibility is terrible you sit way at the back and all these sorts of things so um something else sort of uh, indicative uh, as you said indicative of the era um very very quickly uh, as well actually no I'm getting ahead of myself let's talk about paul servino and then I'll talk about numbers and letters How's that?
0: <laughs> okay, I do, I do have a, a question on the on the tail. The uh, you know when, when they switched to the tripods of, of the future where where planes were right. f- straight and level taking off,
1: which sounds like a science fiction movie all on its own. Like the yeah. the uh, it was it John, the John Christopher the tripods? Yes. Oh, anyway, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it a matter of that was what they were familiar with doing? Is taking off with keeping keeping your wings. Wings tilted upward so that you kind of caught that ground effect, or was it? I mean,
1: <clears throat> that's yeah, that's part of it. Uh, having that, uh, having the smaller wheel in the back, um, you know, it was, uh, an, uh, in certain circumstances, it does sort of in a small way preset the airplane into a, into the right attitude for taking off and climbing. Um, although a lot of times you'll notice the first thing you do in a tailwheel airplane as you're, as you're rolling is you lift the tail up off the ground. So now you're perfectly level and then you transition into that, uh, into that climb attitude. Um, but it does, uh, it does tend to start generating lift a little bit sooner. Um, and it's, uh, for any, uh, any pilots out there or aspiring pilots out there, maybe you'd agree with me that it's, um, it's far more challenging than flying a, a, a nosewheel airplane, partly because of where the center of gravity is and where you are. A tailwheel airplane is kind of like pushing a shopping cart backwards through a grocery store. It always wants to spin around. Tailwheel airplane always wants to do that too. That tail is constantly fighting to get around in front of the airplane, which is exactly what you don't want. So, if you ask, you know, why do you bother? It's uh, it, it, the closest analogy I've ever come up with is uh, um, why do some of us like driving a car with a manual transmission? You know, on paper, everything about an automatic is easier and, and maybe arguably better, but there's something just much more enjoyable. You're much more connected to the experience. Uh, it It's just a much more interesting and rewarding experience to to operate a vehicle, in this case, a nice tailwheel airplane that needs that extra level of finesse.
0: Okay, this is just for my benefit because I don't know if anybody would actually care to me. Uh, it's all you're... about you, Jim. This is it
1: the is. this it's... is the Jim O'Kane minute, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Hal, Hal's here is my library computer, but I just <laughs> yes. uh,
1: I'm sorry, Jim. I'm afraid I can't do that.
0: <laughs> when you when you are rolling down the runway, and I know there's different there's different uh, velocities, like V right. one, where you can't stop. You got to keep going and take sure. off and and then there's V-Rotate where you you, know, you have to pull it up into the sky. Is there a V where you have to get the tail wheel up off the ground? Is that, is that a uh, thing?
1: It's, it's not necessarily called out as a specific speed, but uh, what you do find, though, is um, there can be a transition point in a tailwheel airplane that you have to be very, very careful of. So as long as that, that third wheel, the tail wheel, is on the ground, then you're using that wheel to some extent to provide steering. As soon as it is off the ground, you're using just the rudder to provide your steering. So there's got to be enough airflow over the rudder to, to make it effective. So there can be a speed where you're just fast enough where that tail starts to get light and fly, so you lose the steering from the wheel, but it's not fast enough for the rudder to be effective, so whatever direction you happen to be going at that instant is the direction you're going to be going until you accelerate uh, and go faster. So we do a lot of times talk about holding the tail down until we're at a safer speed, um, and that's not necessarily marked as one of those you know V speeds, you know V this V that, but uh, but it is a speed you do learn pretty quickly uh, in any given airplane. Some airplanes don't really have this issue. Basically, if it's fast enough for the tail to fly, the rudder works great. But in in this case, something like the the GB. I would I would presume with all of that thrust coming from that massive engine up front, you probably have pretty good rudder effectiveness all the way through. But uh, but we've got some great resources about this particular airplane that we can dive deeper into. I, th- I think maybe in tomorrow's minute, and talk about uh, flying this particular airplane.
0: Okay, sounds good. Now my brain is full. Thank you. <laughs> all right then.
1: Well, thanks for coming, everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about Paul Servino though before we get out of here. Um, by the and that is a great. <laughs> We're not even
1: close to being done with this minute. <laughs>
0: I have to say that's one of my favorite shots of the gb as i mean we're getting more more visibility there as we're as we're moving yeah. further further away from the from the ship um i just love the sky reflected off the uh, the skin oh yeah as, as it's being pushed yeah. into the sunshine
1: and you get such a great look at that blunt fierce sort of nose high attitude uh yeah. that it has you know that all i mean all good taildraggers have and you can that's probably one of the better examples, actually, that visibility that you're talking about. You can see where the pilot sits, and how could you possibly see anything straight ahead? And the answer is you really can't. But yeah, that's not would, what this airplane was built for. It was built to go fast.
0: I would think that you might want to even put, like, a, a piece of plexiglass on the floorboards and look between the rudder pedals, maybe, yes. just, <laughs> just so that you can see where you're going.
1: You know, there's a lot um, of aerobatic airplanes that do that, and that's a little bit more for, you know, tracking the ground and maneuvers and things like that. But that's not—that's not uh, that's not exactly – it's not unheard of.
0: Yeah, the uh, this of uh, typical of the time of the '30s, there were a lot of guy wires holding, uh, holding monoplanes together. I would think that would be uh, something that would be repaired later as uh, stronger allo- alloys and uh, tougher tougher materials were made for the wings, so that you didn't have to uh, uh, suspend every. You know, it's almost like a suspension bridge. Some uh, some of the, the earlier, when you look at some some of the '30s planes, they'll actually have like a like a tower in the middle of the fuselage that right. Kind of holds yeah. the rest of the rest of the wings up
1: and it 's interesting you point that out because that was uh, much more prevalent in with biplanes, but uh, uh, you know the gb uh, this particular gb this this uh, model Z recreation. Uh, was originally built in 1931 and that was at a time when uh when biplanes were still very prevalent and so you can still see we're using a lot of the same construction techniques which is is fascinating because those wires cause an immense amount of drag so for an airplane that's built for speed um as as blunt and pudgy as the gb looks uh in fact just in a couple of seconds you see a nice top-down view of it it's actually quite streamlined it's you know it's really shaped like a bullet. Uh, the the wheel pants the covers of the wheels are very very streamlined everything about it is nice and curved and streamlined and then for the sake of structural integrity though they had to put these external wires on it and we have construction techniques you know now and that that really came around really starting in uh, the, you know mid and late 30s and certainly by the time we got to the 40s uh those were really uh, all but things of history except for you know specific vintage types and that sort of thing.
0: It it is it it always amazes me that it, it, the 30s there was so it was such a um a cauldron of things being you know so many things were being thrown out and so many things were being put on top of each other. They didn't have time to do it all, so they did some of it in pieces. This is like the the only equivalent I can think of modern days or you know in our in our lifetimes was the VCR DVD combo kits that you. It's like I want to be able to watch a DVD, but I still want a VCR so it's 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 a monoplane built in the biplane era but quite a quite a scene but well, let's let's talk a little bit about paul servino um paul servino of course is everybody's favorite gangster he's if you if you want a guy in a black shirt and a white tie paul servino's your man <laughs> he was born right about you know in 1939 when this uh we roughly when this film was set so he, he grew up in in this thing uh you know if you've seen goodfellas if you've seen casino you know paul servino and he's just he's very good at being very quietly angry and he he does that very well in this movie i just uh enjoy seeing him uh i i remember watching him in a in a movie on hbo called that championship season with uh with martin Sheen and stuff and it was it, it was an old uh, basketball team that had been getting together every year and and talking about when they used to be winners and how they they weren't uh you know all their their failures since the last since they were in college um and it was a, it was a non-gangster role for him um but he he became part of uh of that whole wise guy uh uh era of the of the 80s and 90s i think that's where he hit his stride
1: and goodfellas uh, was 1990 if i remember right so yeah the, the summer
0: the summer prior to this right so yeah, so he just basically just carry. They, they probably told him, you know that that movie you were just in, just yeah. keep doing that. Only now yeah. it's nineteen thirty-eight.
1: Right, we're just the, the lapels will be a little different, and you know, dress a little better, put a carnation, and yeah.
0: Uh... yeah, he uh, he was in. Um, I don't know if you, not that many people saw Oliver Stone's Nixon, but he was, he played Henry Kissinger, <laughs> it was. I, I remember wow. seeing the movie, going, "Wow, this is well." That whole movie is just horribly miscast but uh, he, he did a good good try he really he he, he tries doing what, what he was um, i had completely forgotten about that
1: but i i don't know what it is you know in, in goodfellas uh and and as we see in in to me that that persona carries forward so well in this movie you just you, you catch yourself thinking yeah maybe being a gangster wouldn't be such a bad thing and and you know could he be my uncle this? you want yeah. you want Paul Servino to be part of your family somehow.
0: Yeah, yeah, you just he he'd be the guy showing up with um uh, you know the cannolis and you say, Exactly. Okay, Uncle Paulie's yeah. here. Right. Um, yeah. But he just just really he, he he's perfect in the role that he does here and uh he's kind of he's he's that uh, uh guys and dolls kind of guy. He's a he's a bad guy but he's a good guy too and you know maybe we'll get to see a little bit more of the good guy side of him. Uh he he could be a savior of this piece um so anyway the, the fellows are still pushing that uh that gb outside we're finally hitting the sunshine does it really take i it i guess it only takes three uh we're, we're seeing we're seeing four guys pushing this plane as we get to the big the beautiful overhead shot of the gb right and uh we're going to know them later as uh goose and uh skeets who are holding onto to the wings let me get this straight skeets is the fellow pushing the uh the left wing uh goose is the guy pushing the tail uh there's another hanger on uh malcolm uh, who works at the airport and he's an old world war one uh flyer and then there's a fourth guy who we we don't know who he is he's kind of constantly in the background he's never identified in the script so he's our mystery man he's he's you know he could be anybody anybody claiming to be in a movie could say oh i was that guy the right on the right one (laughs)
1: Fine, then it was me. Uh, yeah. it's you know, I hate to break it to you now, Jim, but that, <laughs> that was, was me. That was I, I'm also uh, the originator of the Wilhelm scream. A lot of people oh, okay. know that about me, but uh...
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I I taught James Horner how to go da dum 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 dum. So he uh, he's pushing uh, that th- that mystery man that's that's covering the uh, the uh, the tail number. Which uh, actually, let's talk a little bit about the tail numbers. Why why are they all N, and why uh, why is it important to have them on a on a plane?
1: So, <clears throat> simply put, uh, you know, what we would just now call an N number, uh, at least here in the U.S., um, basically equivalent to a license plate on your car, you know, for all the same reasons. It means it's licensed, it's identifiable, it's unique to that individual uh, individual vehicle. You know, it's a little unusual in the airplane world. We actually paint them on the airplane or they go on, you know, with decals or something. It's not a replaceable thing. Um, the N is, uh, is just the international code for... Um, I've always assumed it was for the N in United States um for whatever reason uh when uh, uh when international organizations were getting together and starting to agree we need some you know some standards and some registrations and assigning country codes I I always assumed we were just a little bit late to the party so when we showed up they say you can ha- you can't have you know U or A you can have uh, you can have N um Anyway, that's probably a completely apocryphal story, but uh, it tells well though. Sure, as far as you, as far as we can tell, um, Canada is C, you know, Great Britain is G, Germany Deutschland is D, that sort of thing. So, so in the U.S. we have N, um, and then what we don't have anymore, we did have in the '30s, is that second letter. Um, in this case, it's N R, and then seven seven V, or as we would. Uh, we would now call it 77 seven Victor using the phonetic alphabet. The R at that point stands for restricted. So N, it's licensed in the U.S. R mean this is it means that this is licensed in a restricted category. Uh, in this case, this airplane's purpose-built for racing, which means you know you can't sell rides in it. Which of course makes sense because there's only one seat and that's for the pilot. Uh, there's a lot of things you can't do with it, but it's legal to get in it and use it for its specifically designed purpose. It's restricted to that purpose. In this case, racing. Um, seven, seven, uh, seven, seven V is in Victor. Those are just, you know, the, sort of the arbitrary numbers and letters. Um, you can select these to some point, but it's not as, it's not as customizable. Uh, again, going back to the plate analogy, it's not like a vanity plate in a car. Um, <clears throat> now this, this airplane is a recreation, uh, done by a guy named Bill Turner out in California of a real, of a real airplane. And it's, uh, it's an exceptionally well done detailed reproduction of uh, the original GB Model Z uh, racer from 1931. And uh, what's kind of nice in cases like this is uh, they were able to reuse that original number. So the original airplane was in the, in the early 30s crashed and was destroyed. When he built the replica in, uh, in the late 70s, um, he was able to apply to the FAA and get that N number again. So this is not the specific individual airplane that originally wore that number, but it's a recreation of it and it legally and legitimately has that number. So so,
0: so the numbers aren't retired, I guess, with the with the loss of a plane. You can... Not
1: necessarily, no, you can sort of apply to have them done. Um, as a quick aside, one of the probably one of the more famous numbers would be nx 211 and that was the the number on the on the spirit of St. Louis, uh, N for the US, X for experimental uh, so on Charles Lindbergh's airplane flying across the uh, Atlantic in 1927, uh, that airplane obviously hangs in the Smithsonian, uh, the Air, National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian st- Institution. Um, uh, but at uh, EAA, where I work, uh, we have one of, actually we have two of several flyable replicas of it. We were very lucky uh, when we built our, uh, our second one to go to the FAA and actually get that number reissued. So... I've had a chance to fly it, and so you know that makes me one of not that many people. I mean, certainly in the low few hundreds, probably that have NX two one one in their logbook besides besides Lindbergh. So that <laughs> wow. does not make me uh, that does I, not make me great, but uh, you know maybe it maybe it earns me a drink at a party. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I, and I guess you have to fly it with, like looking sideways yeah, and things exactly. like that. Exactly. Now our
1: more. replicas are set up. Uh, so we have there's a there's room for a safety pilot in the in in a front seat. Lindbergh had 400 gallons of gas to fly 33 hours. We have uh, we have a, a safety pilot who's got small windows. But but when I've flown it, you're flying sitting in the back in the Lindbergh seat. You still can't see straight ahead, so you're always peeking out the side and that kind of thing. Anyway, wow. So that's numbers and letters by Hal. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and and over the the current uh numbers and letters that we're looking at is uh the name terry o'quinn who i think terry o'quinn it will forever be associated with lost i think john Locke he's uh he's the eternal uh mystery uh fantastic actor in this movie playing howard hughes and uh i love watching terry terry o'quinn work he's uh he, he rides the line between good and evil and does it in? Does it always does it with a smile? He's always very happy when things are just when mayhem is, is all around, and that, and that's how he plays Howard Hughes. And
1: movie. I absolutely loved him uh, in uh, Alias as well. I thought he was.
0: Yes, yes, he was. He was. He was great in Alias, and uh, uh, also, I mean, if you really want creepy, uh, check out the movie The Stepfather, because that is he is. <laughs> Very disturbing in that movie. He's just, just he has that whole Christopher Walken thing about him that you know you you really like the right. guy, but if you just if he tapped you on the shoulder, you turned like, around, you'd kind of give yourself a start. Just he
1: feels like a, a, a Christopher Walken that you'd be okay taking places. You know, you're, yeah, Walken. Yeah. Is, I don't know if I, I don't know if you could take him anywhere, but uh, you know, Terry O'Quinn, you can bring him out there. But yeah, he's got he always does have that. Uh, there's a steely edge under this very very affable exterior.
0: Yeah, we we were talking about uh, Star Trek uh, yesterday with uh, Bill Campbell, and uh, and how he lost Riker to uh, to uh, Jonathan Frakes, and and I, whenever I think of uh, Terry O'Quinn, I can't think of uh, anything more besides Locke uh, in in Lost. I, I think of him in uh, in that episode of the Pegasus of uh, on, on the right. Next Generation where he was Jonathan Frakes' uh, evil admiral, uh, former boss who was trying to get him to do very unethical things, and. Uh, he got to play that one with hair. He had a lot more, <laughs> <laughs> more hair hair in that uh, in that particular episode. But uh, yeah, very very enjoyable. And I think yeah, if you haven't seen this movie, by the way, you should go see the movie. But when you do see it, I think most people will find Terry O'Quinn to be a fan favorite for uh, for playing Howard Hughes. Um, you know, as we so, uh, transition
1: out of Terry O'Quinn, one thing very quickly to point out for people who may not uh, may not be familiar is you, um, Terry O'Quinn's name is fading out, and we're the uh, the guy's pushing the airplane. The, the GB out are, are turning it. And you can notice that the, uh, the tail wheel just swivels. It, it's, uh, it's a castering tail wheel. So, um, and I believe, and we'll, I'll, I'll dive deeper into this, uh, maybe tomorrow's episode, but I believe this is also has a, a locking tail wheel, but while you're taxing the airplane, the, uh, that wheel just sort of swivels like a, like again, like a shopping cart. So you can see it turning. And then you notice, um, uh sorry who's on the right wing again with the
0: i guess that would be you hal
1: I, I... well so yeah of course it's me right oh that's right because that's that's the guy we don't that's, know yeah. that's that guy we don't know like um you just notice it's it, it's intriguing to point out everybody the other two guys are pushing he's actually pulling to uh to get that airplane to sort of swivel and get it lined up straight um since there's you know, there's there's no other real steering mechanism uh, to it at this point with nobody in the cockpit.
0: Yeah, I just keep thinking of the owner of the GB watching these these are act, actors and not just d- doubles, so they right. probably went very carefully over it with William Sanderson and Don Pugsley and uh, uh, right. Eddie Jones. <laughs> Please, whatever you do, don't don't talk too hard.
1: Oh, one thing I was actually surprised to learn as we started digging into this that uh, Disney did actually buy this airplane. Oh. For the for the use of the movie, which is pretty unusual, but it's also, you know, kudos to them. It's uh, for for making that level of commitment and and uh, uh, and saying, you know, you know what this is this is going to be ours. Um, and I, I didn't realize that, but then when that airplane came here to Oshkosh for our big annual fly-in and convention and air show, uh, it came. It would have been the summer, either of ninety-one or ninety-two. Obviously, the, the, the shooting was long since done but uh it was actually still owned by Disney but they had uh effectively loaned it back to the original owner so that he could bring it uh, bring it out here and display it
0: now when these are shipped to Oshkosh are they flown there or are do do people actually do cross country with this or do they just put it in a truck and roll it around i would
1: You know, it it really varies. It depends on the person and the pilot and how comfortable they are. And, of course, it depends a lot on weather. Um, You might be surprised, though, how many of these airplanes uh, people will just fly them out. There was another GB replica built just recently. is an airplane called the QED, which the proportions look very, very similar uh, to this Model Z that we're seeing here, but it is... I'd have to look at the dimensions, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it were effectively twice as big. It's a massive, massive airplane. And that was done out in uh, Washington State, uh, actually about five minutes uh, five minutes by air from the little airstrip where I grew up, where my dad still lives. And uh, uh, that airplane, they flew, you know, no problem. They flew, flew that uh, two thousand miles from uh, near Seattle out here to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, uh, for our uh, our big get together, maybe two two or three years ago so people people will do it
0: well i guess i guess if you own it i mean the urge to fly it is overwhelming you say you might yeah (laughs) might as well take it up Um, exactly uh, go a couple thousand miles this was apparently disney was in their plane buying mood when uh, when they did this one of the other famous planes from this time uh speaking of howard hughes and terry o'quinn uh they had at the time i think they still owned the uh the spruce goose they had moved it uh, to long beach and we were hoping for a a great tourist attraction there, with uh, letting people see uh, Howard Hughes's uh, uh, big, you know, Hercules.
1: Right. Um, yeah, it was in that dome there, right next to the uh, the Queen Mary. So, yeah. which is where I got married, as it happens. Oh, so,
0: okay. Well, there, <laughs> it's all about Hal Show. So we. Yeah. <laughs> it is now. It's my turn, Jim. <laughs> yes. okay. so, Everybody gets a turn. Yeah. So we. Uh, <laughs> I was I you know, I couldn't figure out at the time why Disney bought it. I mean other than, you know, they 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 could own it and have it, but uh it just doesn't it didn't really make sense for Disney to I I was thinking are they going to try and get it to Anaheim or something? But uh yeah, it was
1: really interesting to set it up there and and create what ultimately was an unsuccessful tourist attraction around it. You know, I know what we'll, we we talk a little bit more about the that airplane the Hercules uh in later uh later episodes, but that always always fascinated me but then again i i find their their current plans to open the the their pandora world uh at disney a little baffling
0: yeah i i mean it's well we'll find we'll find out what happens there if the you know star wars will overtake it and they'll just kind of expand um but we're we're back to uh we're back to the ground level now and uh, we're actually getting introduced to uh two characters with the first first lines of dialogue here and uh we're we're getting uh, pv and uh and cliff secord uh cliff Seacord being the pilot and pv being our uh our mechanic uh discussing how to fly a gb and uh, i from what i'm understanding he's pretty accurate as to uh as to how to fly this thing this is basically you're in you're in trouble for the moment the the uh, propeller starts turning and uh <laughs> you should panic as much as you can because panicking will help
1: um you know and the airplanes have a a a pretty rough reputation uh, basically every single gb racer that was built did crash and uh um and that's you know that's just one of those sort of facts of history but you talk to people uh like bill turner who built the one that the the replica here that we see and it was very very faithful in terms of construction methods and handling and uh was was ultimately blessed by the Granville brothers themselves, you know, 40 years uh, later. So he built it in the 70s, this airplane from the 30s, uh, ultimately blessed by them, saying this is very accurate, very realistic. And, you know, the, those brothers were very frustrated by the reputation the airplanes had because these airplanes weren't, really wasn't anything sort of poorly designed about them. It was just they're built to do one thing. That's just to get in and go fast. And, uh, you know, from the manufacturer's perspective, when they talk about the crashes, uh you know, their feeling was really it was more about sort of pilot error uh, than it would about anything uh, anything structurally wrong with them or anything like that. Um, certainly, they were meant, as I said, you know, take off, go fast in a circle, and then uh, and then if you can survive the landing, you're in good shape. You know, guys like Jimmy Doolittle survived flying them, uh, but certainly a number of pilots uh, a number of pilots didn't.
0: You now, PV mentions here at the opening. I mean, his first sentence is that they, that he's that it'll stall out at about a hundred. Uh, planes that I've flown, you know, the, the general aviation planes I've flown, usually when you're at about sixty-five, they're okay. And just the idea sure. that you have to go twice as fast just to keep it in the air. Uh, I guess it's, there's just not a lot of surface area on that wing to hold up the giant engine, so you really have to keep planning. Yeah, through.
1: it's. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it's it's not a long wing. Uh, there's a lot of density in the fuselage. It is sort of a lifting body fuselage, so at higher speeds. it's The idea, anyway, is that the fuselage has enough of an airfoil shape to it. It might carry a bit of its own weight. But uh, the whole airplane is really... See, everything behind the engine is almost an afterthought. This is, This thing exists to get to get that engine around pylons as fast as it can go and when it's uh when it's built to go fast like that then then generally speaking yeah, you sacrifice those low speed handling techniques so you're absolutely right uh, a stall speed of 100 is uh would be very much a handful for uh for pilots flying a lot of other airplanes of the day and uh when you get into a you know a, a current Cessna 172 or something like that uh, you you can get that airplane down into the forties before it'll stall, so very much an apples uh, apples and oranges comparison there. But you're absolutely right that's uh, that makes this one of the things that makes this airplane a handful, particularly on landing.
0: Yeah, and uh, we're we're seeing more uh, as as we get to this ground uh, ground uh, view. Uh, we're passing by Miss Los Angeles, and there's another monoplane uh, behind it, which I think is that the mystery ship. I...
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's another one of these wonderful uh, wonderful reproductions. Um, of the uh, the Travel Air Mystery Ship, another contemporary contemporary racer. Um, one of the more famous uh, famous pilots to have flown that airplane was uh, in again the, the original one from the 30s was Poncho Barnes. So you see her as the uh, if you've uh, if you watch the right stuff, there's a there's a grumpy old foul mouthed woman uh, tending bar, um, who also happened to be uh, be one of the one of the great race pilots, one of the most colorful characters in aviation in the 30s. Um, one of the most foul mouthed people I think who's ever lived, but she had, uh, she had a mystery ship that, uh, that she flew and raced, raced quite a bit.
0: Nice. Nice to thinking that she would be a colleague of, uh, of Cliff and Peavy.
1: Exactly. I see her and Peavy, uh, grumbling about Cliff over a beer. Yeah. And then I see Peavy getting embarrassed by her language,
0: frankly, and wandering away. But... Yeah. Or Millie chasing her out of the, uh, the bulldog. <laughs> Not right. Not in my place. Uh, but uh, great, yeah, great scene. Uh, I think one of the things that that is very well captured here, with just the sight of the the step ladder next to uh, uh, Miss Los Angeles, is every time I go to a general aviation uh, thing, it, it's a lot like going to a a boat slip. There, there's maybe one one ship taking off, and there's <laughs> about ten others where somebody either has a bucket full of soap and water or or a paint right. or they've got you know oil cans and <laughs> it's most of the time spent in uh in in owning an aircraft is sitting around uh, either fixing it or cleaning it off or, or just trying to track down why so many bugs live in your plane
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly
1: that's that's all about uh I think you hit it. I'm glad you said, uh, I'm glad you said washing and cleaning because there's, you know, that's a large part of it too. And I think sometimes that contributes uh, contributes to the reputation is that, you know, but Hey, if you love your airplane, you you want to go out there and keep it clean and tidy and everything else. And, and then of course too. Um, it, all the airplanes we've seen so far uh, on the ground at this uh, at at this airport are yeah. racers, which means we're always tuning and tweaking and and and, uh, and
0: everything else. I think it catch it captures. I mean, one of you know there is a, there is a main story in this, and we're going to talk about you know Nazi spy rings and all kinds of flying commandos and all that other jazz. But the background of it all, the whole environment, is general aviation, and all of the stuff here. This is eighty years ago. Nothing really has changed other than the tech. But it's all still the same. The camaraderie, the, the commiserating seems to be constant. That, that, has, that hasn't exactly. changed in a, a century of aviation, this whole sense of you're fighting the air and there's other people that are with you and you try to get their ideas on how they're, on how they're fighting the air. Right.
1: And even in the case of you know something specifically and strictly competitive like, like racing, uh, the camaraderie and cooperation there is even to this day is, is remarkable. Um, you know, you go to, you go to any small uh, general aviation airport, um, now, and you get a, you get a sense of that camaraderie, you know, you walk around and find an open hanger and strike up a conversation and figure out who, you know, in common and all that good stuff. But as I said, even in the, even in the racing world where, where there's prizes and other things at stake, um, you know, you see some of the some of the closest friendships, and everybody being willing to drop everything and help somebody else, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah,
0: it's uh, as as Joe Petroni said in another movie. It's just, you just, it's like a circus. That somebody yells, "Hey, Ruben!" Everybody comes running. It's it is, it's quite right. quite a friendship that develops over you know an entire planet of of people doing these things. It's it's amazing. Great view of uh, of the hangar there and the uh, ever present uh, airport beacon.
1: Right, and. I- we may touch on this again in another episode, but in, in case we forget, uh, you know, that uh, that hangar still exists. The hangar was built for the film uh, and it's at the Santa Maria Airport and it's home to uh, home to their museum and a collection of uh, some props from the film and stuff like that. So out in Santa Maria, California. So well worth a visit and happy to give them a plug. Um, I have uh, hopes of maybe getting somebody from the museum uh uh, on a future episode but we'll see yeah, how so that goes
0: tune in tomorrow and, and, and the next day and the next day <laughs> so we'll see
1: and we right we... in fact tune in uh, what 107 yeah, more times
0: a piece of cake you can do this you know on your treadmill out and out in the woods wherever you want wherever you want to start thinking about airplanes we're, we're right here
1: while you're performing yeah. surgery if that's yeah. something that keep, you do keep
0: those hands steady and, and if it starts to shimmy just back you know we also get to see um, not only aircraft but there's a there's a great model t uh uh ford truck that's in this uh that's in this film and uh we get to see a, a bit of it in this one little scene uh, that'll be Peavy's truck which plays a major role later on but it's it's nice getting a first view to people dis brown cars but I, as i've o- i've owned several brown cars in my past and i always kind of feel love for this this Poor little truck, we finally get to see a face on view of, of, uh, of Cliff and Peavy as, as they're walking around. Uh, as I'm watching this, the only thing that bothers me is that Cliff seems to make a very cursory pre flight check of his plane. It's like, Oh, right. there's a propeller, okay, I better get in the plane. Yeah.
1: I always assumed that, uh, that he had done the bulk of that, you know, in the hangar before they rolled it out, but uh. Uh, that's just, that's just me trying to reconcile things is, you know, Jim, as he said, you know, anytime we fly an airplane, in fact, I'm actually flying, uh, my wife and I are going to go fly to lunch, yeah. uh, afterward and recording, uh, recording this particular episode. Um, I, you know, you spend a good 20 minutes, half an hour, uh, really looking over, over an airplane before you get in and go. It's, 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 uh, you might say, oh, I'm going to jump in the airplane and go over here, but it's, it's not quite the same as jumping in your car. We tend to take that those uh, pre-flight inspections yeah, much more seriously. It's
0: not like you can reach out the window and adjust your rear view. It's not... It, it the, Right.
1: Or pull over to the side of the road and stop because, you know, because you forgot to close the trunk yeah, or something. Yeah, there's,
0: there's not that many moving parts on the outside of a plane, but the ones that move, you have right. to make sure that they're free of, you know... Oh, this is, this is Hornet season right now in the springtime here, and uh, it's amazing <laughs> how much they love the interior of aircraft and all the nooks and crannies. Oh sure, Um, but we are, uh, yeah. So, so we watch him, uh, looking at things and, uh, we, we passed by, by the way, uh, we passed by a couple of names here, uh, Ed Lauder and James Handy. Uh, I just want to focus a little bit on Ed Lauder. You will know this guy. He is a classic character actor. Uh, unfortunately he's no longer with us, but he's been in everything as the, he's always the skeptical guy. He has, he had a skeptical face. That is that, um, the emoticon of a colon followed by a, a forward slash that's, he he was perfect at that. When you see his face and he look at somebody, he doesn't believe anybody. He was the perfect, um, you know, lead investigator, the desk sergeant, that kind of guy. And in this one, he plays an FBI agent. Um, I just I love watching him on the uh, and everything that he does. You he is a that guy. You don't know his name, you know his face in everything from Law and Order to Murder She Wrote and all the other you know mystery movies and all this other jazz. He had a great career. He was in over two hundred movies and TV shows, and uh, just I just wanted to point him out because when we get to him uh, a little bit in, in just a, just a few episodes, uh, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of him, and just again one of my favorite characters in this movie, and uh, another good use of, of character actors in this film. Of course, the woman we have to thank for this after oh, I didn't mention Timothy Dalton, but we'll we'll talk about him in a later episode. But uh, the woman that we have to thank for this is Nancy Foy, uh, who was a casting director for this movie uh she did a lot of disney films a lot of movies featuring kids and so you know like the honey and shrink the kids kind of thing she's done she's done those kind of a lot of a lot of films featuring people of different ages and really she should have gotten an oscar for this film because i think everybody in this movie is exactly who it's supposed to be uh i've i've never seen a better cast movie that i can think of um now is that unusual to see the casting
1: director that far up front in the credits it i guess i can't say that i always pay attention to where casting directors fall and of course we're 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 kind of there seems to be something cyclical on when we have open credits versus just closing credits and we 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 seem to be very much in a strictly closing credits phase these days uh- but it just—it always surprises me that you know Timothy Dalton, and then and then boom, here's the here's the casting director, which I think is she, great.
0: Actually, it goes it goes lowest to highest, and what we're what we're looking at. I mean, after we see what we're seeing, this is a DGA format. Uh, we see the cast. We just we've just seen all the major players listed. Those are the ones that have right. to be in the opening credits, and and their contract specifies it. That's that's just a, a union rule of of these are feature players, so. From now on, as we go through the rest of these, this is uh, we're going up the pyramid. So the low, the okay. lowest member on that totem pole is Nancy Foy, the casting director. So we're going to start seeing it go uh, higher and higher as we're seeing. We, we take a break in the action here. We take a break in the cards as we get a little bit more storyline coming up. But she is the uh, she's the lowest member of the totem pole, and we're going to start going through things like uh makeup uh set de- set designer um production designer uh who wrote who wrote the original one uh the editor and then we get through the producers finally ending with uh, the director but that's that's minutes away the the, the director is the high guy on that on that totem pole so here she's the she's the uh biggest one of the tribe before we get to the chief and the medicine man and all that so she's uh She's at gotcha. the top of the uh, the NCOs.
1: Well, as you said, she you know, she couldn't possibly get enough credit uh, for the for the casting in this film It's just pitch yeah, perfect. Yeah.
0: I, uh, and uh, so we get to we get to watch her fade out on the back of uh, of. I, here's another question I have as we <laughs> as we go go with oh. pilot. Cliff is wearing his zipper jacket, and this is uh, right. You know this that that to me is a normal. I mean, what we'll, would we'll later become a members-only jacket, but this this is your standard. <laughs> I don't I don't see a white scarf. I think this is probably past the white scarf days, and you probably don't have. anything in a closed right. cockpit, so he doesn't really need a white scarf. That, that although
1: you know the. Uh, no, oh, the, oh, go, oh, ahead.
0: Sorry,
1: go ahead. I was just say, well, about the 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 scarves. Obviously, to you know, sort of keep your neck protected from the wind and things like that. But they also uh, they also keep. Uh, keep your neck from getting sort of chafed and rubbed raw as you're looking around so much that's why we saw them so prevalent with the fighter pilots in World yeah. War one so you have a nice silk around your neck as your, your head is literally on a swivel. you're always looking for the bad guy hence the, um, hence the name so, Leathernecks, yeah exactly uh, yeah
0: and so, uh you know he's he's in this he's in this uh, zip up zip up leather jacket it looks like a leather jacket and he's wearing right. the, the the high khakis um later on when we actually see the rocketeers uh get up where he's got that uh the uh, you know across the top and the, the buttons kind of like a an old dentist outfit. I was just wondering. I never thought about that. I think you might have just ruined oh, that jacket sorry. for me. <laughs> That's it. No jacket for you. So the uh, yeah. I, I was just wondering yeah. that jacket as a. I have never seen it on anybody but the Rocketeer, and I was just trying to figure out: is there any is there any background to that in in regular attire for aviators in the 30s? You know, I haven't.
1: I don't think I've ever seen that sort of double breasted or one and a half breasted whatever you describe that, that big look. number
0: seven in on, uh, buttons. Are...
1: <laughs> yeah exactly on uh you know other jackets of the air, but certainly um you know in the barnstorming era, and you know here in the the late thirties where uh we're at the very tail end of the barnstorming era, but pilots flying open cockpit biplanes around the country and landing in fields and selling rides and doing stunts and and And, uh, you know, there were things like Bigelow's uh, Circus, his aerial circus here, that sort of thing. You know, they would, uh, there was a style associated with it. It was almost always uh, leather jackets, you know, leather that's tough, it's durable, it's light, uh, protects you from the breeze. Uh, It's not necessarily too hot uh, uh, in the summer, but what could be. But you saw people like uh, really colorful characters uh, in the air racing era around this same time, like Roscoe Turner, who wore, you know, much longer-waisted jackets, and I think it really was just a stylistic thing that, okay, everybody's got their leather jacket, but who can make theirs look a little bit fancier as part of their image and, you know, uh, or prototypical branding at that time?
0: Uh, I do have a, a question at uh, second 43. I was trying to figure okay. out how um, chronologically correct that is. There seems to be a plastic barrel holding up the bottom of the GB.
1: Let's see here. I'm looking right at second forty. 43, right 43, yeah. Holding at the bottom of the GB? Yeah,
0: underneath the GB, there seems to be a clear plastic barrel, and it's right in front of, it's kind of a, a chalk in front of the tail wheel, and it just does it doesn't seem to be, uh,
1: um, oh, you no, know, you know what that is, sorry, I just, uh, I was starting, oh, oh, I was starting later no, in second it's 43. it's the canopy. It's, it's the, the canopy. canopy. Okay. Yeah, it's the canopy. That's just kind of an odd spot to just yeah. set it, but yeah, we see yeah. that much more clearly uh, right at the end of this minute when uh, when Cliff gets in and they sort of bolt him Got into it. 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 I was I was wondering um,
0: what that. It looked like a chalk to me, but now that I'm looking at, yes, yeah, that's the lid, and it's just taking the reflection, yeah. the yellow reflection. It just looked like a. Ah, okay. That yeah. Now that begins yeah. to make sense because I've been watching this the other day and I was like, what is that? And then. It,
1: and you thought Joe Johnston I made thought, a mistake, yeah. Jim. Oh, come on you yeah. know better than that
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all in tune with it now so
1: uh <laughs> yeah it, right in that second 43 we see uh you know he cliffs walking around the back of the airplane he's he's just about to pull out his uh his gum his beman's chewing gum of course but you get a nice look at the uh the rudder of the gb so it's got that N number again in r77 victor and then the nice script manufactured by granville brothers aircraft springfield airport springfield massachusetts um <clears throat> so at the uh uh, the original GBZ, the original seven seven Victor, was known as uh, the City of Springfield. And that was the nose art. That was the name that was named to honor their uh, their hometown. Um, and so that's a little bit of foreshadowing because we may or may not see another airplane with that title on it later ah, on.
0: Okay. Now the Granville brothers, they were primarily concerned with racing, but did they sell other types of aircraft, or that was their specific focus?
1: They they were they specialized in racing. They were really really focused on that. And uh, again, I think we'll probably go talk about this this further. But they they were uh, they were prolific uh, race plane designers, but that was their that was their laser focus. And it's it's a shame that so few of their airplanes really survived today. Anything you see is almost certainly a replica. There's one one uh, complete GBQED. That's that really giant uh, version we talked about when I talk about a replica flying here from Seattle. Uh, that one's in a museum in Mexico City. Uh, the next biggest piece is from a model R racer and it's, uh, it's a portion of a wing and, uh, we've got that in our museum here in Oshkosh and otherwise, uh, there, there's really nothing, uh, nothing out there that's real. The, uh. Uh, the replica we see here on screen is uh, currently on display at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. So that's, uh, that's a cool thing to go out and see. And then there's sort of a sister ship, another GBZ replica that uh, belongs to uh, Kermit Weeks out in Florida. And uh, we've been talking to Kermit about coming on as a guest, so we'll hopefully have him in a future episode. That was
0: really good. Now, Beemans, I was wondering, I know that it's a, it's considered a classic of aviators, um, but the only way I know this is that I've seen it in this movie and I've seen it in The Right Stuff.
1: In The, in the Right Stuff. And, you know, beyond that, that's going to be a fun one to, to see if we can dig into further. I've never really understood the connection other than it's just one of those things that, uh, that everybody seems to know. You know, obviously the right stuff and, and the Rocketeer reinforced it. Um, and it does periodically get uh, get re-released. Uh, we we have to see if there's anybody selling it currently so we can get it up yeah, on the usually,
0: site. Yeah, uh, usually uh, I, I check Cracker Barrel seems to be the major supplier of Beeman's gum. All so. right. I'll
1: check in and if you haven't tried it, it's, uh, I'm not a huge gum chewer, but it's really good. It's a strong wintergreen flavor. Yeah, green it
0: tastes flavor. like uh, those old so, candy cigarettes that was the closest flavor I can think of. Yeah, be. it
1: does. Yeah, very much like the candy cigarettes and a little bit of, a little bit of Lifesaver, Wintergreen yeah. Lifesaver. Sorry, Wintergreen winter green yeah. Lifesaver. I don't know if
0: they're, in, uh, so. if they're, if they have that piezoelectric effect of regular <laughs> Lifesavers. <but. laughs>
1: right. I don't know if you can go yeah. sparking with Beeman's, but, uh, uh, but we'll talk about that on a future episode of the sure, Candy yeah, Minute, I'm sure. Up,
0: don't worry. <laughs> uh I do notice the windsock is, like, fully pointing to the left, um, which seems like quite a crosswind to be taking off on your first flight.
1: Well, I think where he's sitting here, though, I, I'll i have to watch this to be sure. It's, uh, I believe right now he's basically parallel to the runway, isn't he? Yeah,
0: he is parallel. So, if anything, it would... Notice so, was- so
1: where he's sitting right now, it's a, it's a strong tailwind. But as soon as he turns around, because he... Oh, he yeah. Would, I- you know, he's taxing off left frame. So, he'll be going straight into the wind, which... You know, as long as the wind is consistent, and you know, especially in a in something of a, a swirlier airplane like this, hopefully right down the runway, you know, it's it's not uh, not much of an issue. Um, now, if you were taking off and then trying to fly somewhere and get to another location in a hurry, then a headwind is going to slow you down, and a tailwind will speed you up. But for takeoff and landing, going right off into the wind, not not a huge worry. But uh, but boy, if I were going to go uh, get checked out in something like a GB, I would want a nice calm yeah. day.
0: Uh- I do I do notice that on the uh, as they're installing the canopy uh, in beautiful script is the uh, uh, words Air Racing Association. Uh, Is the ARA still around or is that a is that a. You
1: know, I can't tell you off the top of my head if there's a direct lineage uh, between the the ARA in this era and then what we have now with the with what we call RARA, the Reno uh, Air Racing Association out in Reno, Nevada, Um, if there's not a direct connection sort of from a you know, maybe a corporate structure standpoint, there's certainly a, uh, there's certainly the spiritual descendants of, uh, of groups like, uh, like the Air Racing Association here back in the 30s. Were, were they responsible
0: um, for the Bendix Cup or were, was that a different group that had,
1: uh, well, yeah. so you had the, you had the Cleveland National Air Races and, and, you know, I know a couple of times we hear PV, uh, he talks about the Nationals. I believe he, he mentions Cleveland even at least once. Um, and then what you had was, uh, uh, the Bendix race was uh, either Burbank or Los Angeles to Cleveland, um, basically to get to the races. So you have the long, long-distance uh, cross-country race to get there. Then you have all the events that happen there. So what you what you had was, um, uh, as I understand, like something like this Air Races Association would have managed the the Cleveland races, and then you had people like companies like Bendix Corporation coming up and sponsoring and saying, "Well, what if we raced?" On the way to the races, and we call it the Bendix race. It's part of the National Air Races, but they get the named sponsorship and things like that. So you found, and there were there were several different uh, different trophies, different cups, races within the uh, the overall. So, sim- event. Similar
0: to like the way Winston Cup is part of uh, General NASCAR racing and things like that.
1: So. Sure, um, <clears throat> you know, and uh, one other thing, quickly to point out, I have not i've been up close to this airplane we see on screen in here and then i have uh i did sit in its sister ship and uh probably the most incredible stunt that bill campbell performs in this whole movie is walking up to this airplane and then swinging a leg up and climbing in from there getting that leg up it's almost to his head <laughs> and he's able to just hop yeah. right in um you know, granted i was you know Older, you know, I'm twice his age now. is probably a lot older than he was uh, first time I sat in one, and I'm a much bigger guy. But, you know, I had a little step stool and, you know, a guy to give me a hand and stepping in gingerly and not wanting to do anything. The way he, did, I don't know if he had to practice that or not. I would love to ask him. But he just walks up and just, he does this rocket high kick, and then suddenly he's climbing into the airplane.
0: Yeah, it, it's, I don't know if there is a hidden stepladder that we've missed or if there's <laughs> up on a ramp somewhere, but if. If we ever do get him on and uh unfortunately for us bill campbell is very popular right now he's on a he's on a canadian detective show and uh he doesn't have time for for mere mortals curse him and his yes. success <laughs> Darn his ride to rise to fame but anyway if if we can if we can right. get him on and who knows keep tuning in we've got only only about uh 10 decades more of uh, of, of episodes but somewhere in here maybe we'll get right. a bill campbell minute
1: and, you know, very quickly before we, where we wrap up, uh, the very last frame of this minute, as they're just about to put the canopy on, we'll talk about that canopy, uh, tomorrow, but, um, you know, Cliff has this young, so sort of earnest kind of optimistic look on his getting that last bit of advice from PV. It's a perfect frame. You get a good look at that helmet, those classic goggles, just, is he's, he's something about that whole look is just flawless, um. You know, I occasionally fly open cockpit airplanes. I've got a helmet and goggles like that. We still use them today, very much the same. Although mine have a Bose headset wound into them, so they don't have that super clean, <laughs> that super clean look. But um, you could almost you could just take that last frame of this minute, and uh, it's just you know portrait of a classic aviator. Yeah,
0: yeah. He, it's, it's the, the the very striking profile there, and uh, gosh, well, I mean, I, I would assume that there's somebody that still makes uh, leather. Uh, leather helmets like that, you know, the, 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 coveralls that you can pull, pull down. Um.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yep. In fact, uh, when I, when I, I had mine custom, uh, custom done and uh, I'm thinking about going back and actually getting one without the headset cups in it. Um, and maybe just using like little inner, inner buds or something like that, just because you have to love that look so much, that nice, clean, you know, that clean, clean yeah, look, but, oh. um, but they make all the difference uh, in an open cockpit yeah. airplane.
0: Yeah, definitely, and just from, (laughs) I'm assuming I'm assuming that it's a lot like you know riding on riding in a a motorcycle without a a helmet, and you're just kind of sweeping the bees out of your hair when you get when you get out of the thing, or probably wiping the oil off your face too. Right.
1: Yeah, like a motorcycle, but at least in some cases faster. (laughs) (laughs) And so. So the uh, the impact of the bugs is accelerated.
0: I wonder how many kids seeing this movie wound up in, in getting involved in um, in aviation because I know I would think that if I were a ten year old at the time watching this, uh, the first thing you'd want to do is go you know go track down your local uh, air school and uh, and get a get a license or right. something because it really it it is one of the best movies for general aviation that I that I've seen out there that you say I, I want to get in a plane now.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I I genuinely don't want to turn this into any any kind of a plug, but I hadn't really thought about this. But the year after this movie came out, 1992, uh, EAA, where I work, we started a program called the Young Eagles Program. And that was, uh, we just decided that we're going to uh, give any kid between the ages of 8 and 17 a free introductory airplane ride. If you're a kid and you think airplanes are cool for whatever reason, we're going to make sure to get you up in a small airplane for free. And uh, we had this commitment that by 2003, the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers, we'd try to fly a million kids. And nobody was really convinced we could do it. But I think by 2003, we'd hit 1.2 million. Then this last summer, uh, we actually passed uh, uh, the 2 million wow. mark. So, um, well,
0: I, I can, as anyway. as the father of uh, an eight year old at the time, or no, he was a, he was nine years old at the time. Uh, I can, I can vouch for the fact that the young Eagles were were great. My, my son went up in a, in a Mooney when he was, he'd been on a lot of commercial planes, but, uh, just getting, you know, getting in there and, and, and taking up into the sky in a, in a general aviation plane, thanks to the kindness of, of the owner of the Mooney. Um, he really, it, it, it put the hook in him and, uh, and he went and he soloed when he was 16. And, uh, uh, you know, oh, that's and that's great and to hear went on that's into really... gliding, you know, gliding and things like that. So it just it, it's it, that love of aviation starts at an early age. And I think the more you get experience it, experiences with a personal experiences, I think the more it drives you to say, I can do this. I, this is not an impossible dream for me. Um, right.
1: Just maybe don't start in a GB. Yeah. <laughs> you know, work your way. up. <laughs> Hang on, kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You pull back to go up. Any questions? Have fun. <laughs>
0: And if she starts to shimmy, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't forget it's your gum. Handful. Yeah. So uh, anyway, a great, a great second minute to this film. I know that we have to, we have to do this because it has to end eventually. And I just, I, <laughs> I, I know we're here at the beginning, but uh, th- these minutes go by uh, very rapidly. But it's great having having all of our our wonderful listeners with us. Uh, to join us in this journey, you can join us out there uh, in the social universe, the social media universe. Uh, at Twitter, we're available at uh, Rocketeer Minute, and uh, you can talk back with us right away. We also have uh, we're we have a presence on Facebook in the uh, Rocketeer's Bulldog Cafe. Uh, where everybody gets together and chats about how much they love this movie and all the people in the movie and what they want to do and what you know what they never want to see in a sequel and all that kind of stuff. We, we can talk about that uh, there. Uh, join us also at our great big web website RocketeerMinute.com. You can catch up on all of our previous episode at this point. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> go back, go back and listen to episode one if you missed it because that was a really good one, and uh, all our future episodes will be out there. Also, you can get some really cool swag from Amazon and uh, who knows what it's all it's all out there in the shopping section of Rocketeer Minute. Uh, but and uh, if you're if you're liking this show so far this week, uh, go out to iTunes or Google Play, search for Rocketeer Minute, and we are. Uh, we're out there you know subscribe and have this delivered to your uh, your mobile device every morning uh promptly so you can get on your treadmill and say gee i wonder what they're going to talk about today so <laughs> you can answer that question for yourself tomorrow uh but join us here uh wednesday when we talk a little bit more about the gb and a little bit more about uh, flying in general and well, who knows where who knows where we will um wind up uh diverging to <laughs> as is our one. Uh, but uh, join us here tomorrow on the Rocketeer Minute. Until then, over and out. Go get him, kid.